0: Late afternoon, Christmas Eve, 1974, Darwin, Australia. For several days, tropical cyclone Tracy has been monitored off the coast of Northern Territory. It's overcast, there are low clouds, and it's raining hard. As winds pick up, residents begin to realise cyclone Tracy is going to pass over, not around the city. In the end, 71 people will die and over 90% of homes in Darwin are badly damaged or demolished. This is the story when Santa never made it into Darwin. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Okay, islanders. First of all, we need to talk about what Darwin was like in 1974. Darwin is the capital city of the Northern Territory. We have really inventive names for our states and territories. How about Western Australia, South Australia and Northern Territory? There you go. Anyway, Darwin is up the top of Australia on the Timor Sea. It's been rebuilt three times before 1974, once in 1897 after a cyclone, 1937 after a cyclone and after the Japanese bombed it during World War II. In 1974 there are about 43,000 people living there in around 12,000 houses, so it's not a very big place. The population though was rising rapidly and therefore the housing industry was booming. Being in a cyclone prone area, you would think that the houses would be built to a higher standard than your average house. But as you will see, this was not always the case. Darwin has a tropical climate with distinct wet and dry seasons. However, the temperature is pretty constant all year round between 30 to 32 degrees centigrade, or about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Most people were employed in the mining, defence, fishing and tourist industries. It was a pretty laid-back little town for a capital city. Darwin gets plenty of cyclone activity during the wet season, which is mainly between December and March, but most are pretty harmless or pass well away from the city. I say... Most so, as we get towards christmas eve nineteen seventy four the weather starts to turn as the Bureau of Meteorology website says, Tracy was first detected as a depression in the Ara- Arafura Sea on twentieth of december nineteen seventy four It moved slowly southwest and intensified, passing close to Bathurst Island on the twenty third and 24th now earlier in the month cyclone selma had been predicted to hit darwin but moved north away from the city and died out so aussies being aussies and it being christmas eve and all the warnings over the radio and tv were largely ignored so rather than prepare for the weather everyone was stocking up the fridge full of tinnies and getting ready to party the wind and rain just kept getting heavier. By lunchtime, Tracy had turned sharply to the southeast around Cape Forcroy on Bathurst Island and was headed straight at Darwin. I mean, it does a total 90 degree turn. Still, people were largely ignoring the ever-increasing winds and rain and the top priority flash cyclone warnings issued on radio and TV although most businesses and government departments did prepare for the cyclone. Now I'll let you listen to the warning.
1: Rubbish tins, outdoor furniture, dead branches, toys and tools should be anchored or taken inside. Store drinking water in bathtubs and bottles and check emergency supplies and tools. You may also need water for firefighting. See if neighbours need help. Lock up pets. When a cyclone comes, remain calm and stay inside. Keep a window open on the side away from the wind and remember if the wind drops suddenly, the calm eye of the cyclone is probably overhead.
0: Pretty common stuff. But you see, as technology was advancing, people were getting more frequent reports of bad weather in the area than ever before. This tends to cause warning fatigue or the no and furries she she'll-be-right-mate syndrome that Aussies have. Often, when severe weather or cyclone warnings were given, nothing really happened, so people became immune to them. In fact, in a book by Kevin Murphy called Big Blow Up North, he quotes Robert Southern, the Regional Director of the Bureau of Meteor- Meteorology in Darwin, as warning the residents. He said, It is in my belief that Darwin will suffer very severe damage by a tropical cyclone. This must happen someday. When it does strike, hundreds of dollars worth of damage will be caused to the majority of buildings. Hundreds of dollars. Well, it was in the early 70s. So, here we have it. Christmas Eve. All the children who were on school holidays at the time would be so excited that Christmas was just one sleep away and they would wake up to all the presents that Santa had dropped off the night before. Back then we didn't say one sleep away but you know, a lot of the adults were starting to hit the piss and celebrate after work as they would have Christmas Day and the next day Boxing Day as public holidays. There are pictures online showing some pretty wild parties going on that night. So, as late afternoon became night, Darwin was covered by low heavy clouds with sudden gusts of wind bringing localised storms. These were starting to increase in frequency and intensity. The HMAS Arrow, an attack class patrol boat captained by Robert Dagworthy, was sent about one kilometre offshore from Stokes Hill Wharf to a cyclone buoy, or buoy, which, once you're there, no cyclone is going to cause you a problem. It's supposed to be safe, but we'll see how they get on later. At 8.30pm, witnesses tell how the skipper of the vessel Booyah, 63-year-old Terence Westwood, and his crew... 31-year-old Gerald Thompson, 22-year-old Gregory Westerman and 30-year-old Graham Dearden were discussing if they should take to sea to avoid the cyclone. Also on board was a guest, 24-year-old Ruth Vincent. The Booyah was a 3 masted schooner built in 1917. It was last seen anchored off Fort Hill Wharf in Darwin Harbour. Also at sea was a smaller vessel called the Darwin Princess, a steel passenger ferry licensed to carry 200 people. It was captained by 28-year-old Raymond Curtin. It's unclear if it was put out to sea or if it broke her moorings. uh, The captain was the only person on board. By around 10 p.m., there were reports of damage occurring in the city as the winds were now picking up at 1am wind gusts of up to 100 kilometers an hour or just over 60 miles per hour are being experienced in darwin so now it's just clicking over to christmas day numerous reports of severe damage in and around darwin were received in the bureau's tropical cyclone warning center. Communications with the mass media were lost when both radio stations failed. Then as 3 a.m. approached, shit was starting to hit the fan. Northeasterly winds were gusting at over 200 kilometers an hour or 125 miles per hour in Darwin and people were starting to freak out and find whatever shelter they could find. Residents in some of the newly developed suburbs to the north were hit particularly bad. There were a few reasons for this. There was, a, there was less tree coverage and as it was a fast developing area lots of building supplies were ripping through houses as they became airborne. It was also found that poor design and lack of cyclone proofing were major factors in the amount of damage that occurred. At 3:05 a.m. a peak gust of 217 kilometers an hour or 135 miles per hour was recorded at Darwin Airport, which is pretty much situated in amongst the town. At 3.10am the anemometer, or wind speed recording system failed so it's getting pretty wild when the weather reporting system equipment gets blown away. At this stage Cyclone Tracy is reported as a Category 4 storm but as there was no way to record its real strength it's been suggested that it actually was a Category 5 storm. By 3.50am, there was a 35-minute period of calm over the airport and this was backed up by radar at Darwin Airport. So, at this stage, most houses have already suffered damage and as you all may well know, especially listeners from the US, the calm in the eye of the storm is only very temporary as the storm passes over and hits you from the other side. By 4.25am, the calm has ended at the airport and Cyclone Tracy's winds are now hitting from the southwest. But there's no gradual build-up. Instead, the full force of the cyclone hit Darwin and already weakened houses succumb completely. There was corrugated iron sheeting, tree branches, other rubble from collapsing buildings, flying all over the place like missiles, and was finishing off anything that had survived the first onslaught of the cyclone. At 4.30am, the airport's radar tracking fails. By 6am, the winds pretty much died down, as Tracy had weakened and moved off towards Howard Springs, about 30 kilometers or 20 miles southeast of Darwin. As the sun rose, the residents, instead of enjoying their Christmas morning and the streets filling with kids on their new bikes riding up and down, the place looked like an atomic bomb had hit it. What was interesting about the cyclone? Was it that it was relatively small but very intense? And that sounds like some people I know. 90% of residential buildings were damaged or totally destroyed. If you Google images, you will see how whole suburbs were flattened. I will post one on my Instagram account. The official death toll would be 65, but later on it would be raised to 71 to include those missing at sea. Remember, I did tell you about three boats or ships, whatever you call them, uh, earlier on in the story. Well, the Booyah and the Darwin Princess were both missing. They would both remain missing until 2003 when divers located the booyah in about 20 metres of water, about 9 kilometres or 6 miles offshore. It was in most part intact, lying on her starboard side. Soon after, the wreck of the Darwin Princess was also found close by and it's unclear whether it was going to the aid of the booyah. No human remains were found on either wreck, but some personal effects were found and they were identified by relatives. This report about the HMAS Arrows was mostly sourced from ABC News. Okay, The HMAS Arrows anchor winch and cable slips were ripped clean from the deck of the ship leaving the vessel at the mercy of 200 hour plus winds. The ship's navigation equipment was also destroyed and an airlock in the pump to cool the engine also meant they could seize at any minute. So they decided to try and ground the ship further inland, but they would almost be blind on how they could get there. Once they got close to the wharf, Captain Dagworthy gave the order to abandon ship and they had to use the waves to climb up onto it. Still, two of his men perished, able seaman Ian Rennie and petty officer Leslie Catton. Captain Dagworthy went on to say that the rain actually took the paint off the metalwork. Also, as he was last to abandon ship, he couldn't make it up to the wharf as the ship had now taken on so much water. He goes on to say, I actually jumped into the water, was swept through the wharf and was found the next day on the mud flats." Now that's some sort of tough mofo there. Captain Dagworthy also went on to say, If it was not for the teamwork of his crew, more people would have died. We had been together in a small ship. You become a really great team. I want people to remember what happened to Arrow and I want people to remember the two sailors who lost their lives. My two mates. Kevin Murphy in his book recounts the story by a Darwin woman who survived the storm. There was a horrible high-pitched sucking noise all round the house from the wind pressure against the windows and the noise of loose debris being bowled along the road. More uncanny and frightening than that was a sudden bursting sound from the other end of the house and then everything seemed to happen at once. The radio went off, the lights went out, the wind became unbelievably stronger and there was rain, thunder and lightning. Above the noise of the storm Flying debris and breaking trees came to a great rending noise of cracking wood, creaking and straining, and the whole place was shaking. As we got under the bed, there was one great heave. Suddenly we could see the sky and feel the rain. Our roof was gone. We dived under the bed and lay on our tummies, not knowing what would happen now. Another big gust and heave and the foot and legs gradually sank down into the floorboards. By this time we were lying in water. I tried to crawl out on my side but came up against something solid and unmovable. The wardrobe had tipped over onto the bed. It was impossible to lift the bed with our backs but Harold managed to squeeze out on his side and told me to stay put. It was horrific to be left lying on my tummy in the cold water, dark and noise, all by myself. This was my most panicky moment. The restriction and feeling of being trapped all added to the general feeling of helplessness. The two walls of the passage began to fall together like a pack of cards. I looked up and could see them waving about my head and I wondered why we had not been hit by anything falling from the sky. Not even bits of glass. I found I had one foot in the kitchen vegetable rack and wondered how it got there. Then a packet of Omo, which is washing powder, descended, and the rain on us tasted soapy instead of salty, and our fingers were slimy. Then came the very worst. Tracy was obviously having her last fling and it was beyond description. The thunder and lightning were continuous. The thunder was a distant rumble blanketed by the wind noise which was a cross between a screech and a roar. On top of that was the creaking of breaking timber and the straining of joints. All over was the din of flying tin as it wrapped itself around bending electric poles and spiked itself on railings. Everything shook and so did we from cold and fright. We tried to keep those two walls from falling together, with us in between and by standing with our bottoms against one and our hands against the other. A hopeless thing to do, but it may at the time have helped to keep our thoughts off other things. So there we were, with our backs literally to the wall, heads down against the lashing rain, hanging on for our lives. I hoped the walls would fall quickly and hit us hard so we would not know anything. Being elevated to first floor level, my mind blanked at what would happen when everything collapsed and us with it. Looking back, I can only liken that experience to being towed standing up in a fast-open boat through a rough sea, in the dark. Even that could not include the possibility of one or both of us being injured by flying debris. What a terrifying story. I don't have the author of that story, but uh, anyway, let's go on. So now that Darwin's been flattened, the rescue and relief measures were soon underway. Major reception centres was set up at Catherine, Tennant Creek and Alice Springs. A huge evacuation effort was now underway with a priority as follows. Priority one, pregnant women, the sick and injured. Priority two women and children only unless the father was decided as essential to the well being of the group. Priority three Elderly people. Priority four, married couples. And priority five, the poor single people, forever alone. Of the over 40,000 population, so there's about 43,000 people there, 35,000 were to be evacuated by air and road over the next few days. On December 26th, there was 1,169 evacuated by air. On December 27, 4,083 by air and 4,200 by road. On the 28th of December, 8,223 people by air and 1,000 by road. On the 29th of December, 7,106 by air and 1200 by road on the 30th of december 4069 by air and 634 by road on the 31st of december there was 978 by air and 200 by road so in total we had 25628 residents evacuated by air and 9,734 by road. So in total, that is 35,362 people evacuated out of a population of around 43,000. And don't forget, Darwin is miles away from anywhere. So this was a huge effort. Just by the numbers evacuated, you can tell that, Basically, the whole place was destroyed. After the evacuation, the population was around 10,000 people. Three quarters of the population was evacuated. This is absolutely amazing. Now, if you see the devastation in the photos online, the fact that 71 people lost their lives was a miracle. The place was absolutely flattened. Of course, before you rebuild, you need to clean up the place, restore power, water and communications. So, electricity crews removed fallen power lines and hooked up portable generators where they, where, where they were available. Damaged and broken water hydrants were sealed off and pumps were actuated to get the city's water and sewerage systems working again. Tarpaulins were placed over damaged roofs to create some basic shelter. The Navy provided ships and personnel in the clean up of Darwin, and the Army flew specialist personnel into Darwin to help supply rations, stores, equipment, and specialist vehicles. The entire Royal Australian Air Force transport fleet airlifted supplies into Darwin and they evacuated 9,678 of those 25,628 people that were flown out of Darwin. In January 1975, the Prime Minister Gough Whitlam pledged that there will be a determined and unremitting effort to rebuild the city and relieve suffering. There was a commission formed, and it aimed to reconstruct Darwin within five years. After a slow start, in the end, it did it in little more than three years. Obviously, the building codes were looked at as most of the houses, especially the new ones, were severely damaged or totally flattened. Darwin's post-cyclone building codes included that buildings must be clad to protect them against flying debris and that roofs must be tied to the foundations. Accommodation while Darwin was being reconstructed, that included the Ocean Liner Patrice and that was tied up at Darwin Waterfront for nine months to provide emergency accommodation for up to 900 people. There was Tracy Village, that was set up for construction workers 1,700 demountable dwellings and caravans were brought to Darwin and located on house sites. Hotels and hostels were filled up and where possible, short-term repairs were done so people could live in damaged houses. Now, what is interesting is the Patrice. Now, that was a cruise ship just before Tracy hit and my grandparents sailed on it, and I was on board visiting just before it set sail. So there you go. There are many other stories from survivors of Cyclone Tracy, but I found this one that stood out, and the kid that wrote it was only a little bit older than me at the time. So he goes on to say, I was 11 years old, living in an elevated house on Rothdale Road in Moyle when Cyclone Tracy hit Darwin on Christmas Eve in 1974. I will always remember the events of that terrifying and unforgettable night, which seemed to go on forever. The first sign that something strange was happening took place when my mother was putting us to bed that night, and we had a difficult time closing the aluminium louvers because the wind was so strong and kept forcing them open. At approximately 1am, my brother woke my sister and I to check what presents Santa had left for us under the Christmas tree. When we got to the lounge room, we were drawn to the window to look outside at the storm, particularly as the sound of the wind was so loud and eerie. What we saw still lives on in my memories as being pretty spectacular. Our yard was covered in a silver glow, which made us think that somehow it had snowed in Darwin. Being kids and in our naivety, this was possible, especially in all the anticipation and excitement that comes with Christmas. It wasn't too long before our excitement was interrupted by our uncle, who had decided to get up as he became increasingly concerned about the force of the wind which was making a horrible howling sound. When we told him that it had snowed in our yard he immediately took a look for himself but instead of sharing our excitement he became quite serious and started loudly knocking on my parents bedroom door to wake them up. The silver we thought was snow glowing on the lawn we later learned was corrugated roofing iron from other houses. At the time We didn't know that my parents were in fact awake discussing the force of the cyclone and agreeing that they made a good decision not to attend midnight mass in such bad weather. So it was by pure chance my parents decided to check on us. When they opened the door they were surprised to see us awake and standing at their doorway because they had not heard us calling out over the noise of the wind. This in itself is incredulous, as my mother is one of those people who was blessed with being a very light sleeper and it has incredible hearing, as she would always hear us if we had left our beds in the middle of the night. Standing in the hallway, my father suggested my mother take towels and blankets into the bathroom and start filling up the bathtub. As he said this, there was a loud crashing sound something had hit the lowest section of aluminium louvre in my brother's bedroom. This was the first in a chain of events that would take place in a very long and emotionally drained night. As my parents went into action preparing the bathroom and fixing the window damage, my siblings and I were to wait it out in my parents' bed. I remember looking at where the ceiling and wall connects, watching brown water streaks running down the wall. When I called out to my father, he immediately yelled out for us to run to him. Seconds after closing the door, we heard a loud crashing sound as the wall succumbed to Tracy's force. Minutes later, something smashed the glass louvers. The bathroom became our safe haven for the next couple of hours while my father and uncle tried to decide the safest option to get us downstairs to the safety of the storeroom. During this time, there were so many snippets of memories that I can recall, like watching our huge three-seater red leather lounge flying through the air down what had been the hallway through to the empty void of what had been my parents' bedroom. Looking out the bathroom window towards the airport and seeing a black twister cutting a path through the bush and my father telling us to get away from the window, worried glass would shatter and we would be hurt. When the bathroom roof began collapsing and debris started falling down on top of us, my father moved us us across the small passageway to the toilet, now made more difficult with the wind tearing through the passageway threatening to carry anything in its path into the dark unknown. My mother still has a small scar on her wrist, which is testament of my father's determination to not lose his grip as he pulled her across to join us. The precarious condition of the toilet, with only four walls separating us from flying missiles, the wind and rain forced us to make the final and most dangerous move, crawling across bare floorboards minus the walls, with dark sky and stars visible where we once had a roof. After some terrifying minutes, we made our way down the front stairs, thankfully clear of debris, and huddled into the storeroom. Cold, wet and dazed from our experience. As children, I don't think we fully appreciated the enormity of the tragedy unfolding around us. As an adult, I often think back to the calm strength my parents projected providing me with a sense of security and confidence that my dad will protect us. On a lighter note from that horrific night, I often think of my father teasing my mother of her decision to pick the old towels and blankets over the recently purchased new ones from the linen cupboard because she did not want them to get wet. But after everything was over, the linen cupboard was never seen again. This taught me a very valuable lesson which has stayed with me forever and that is the most precious and valuable thing we all have are our loved ones. You can replace furniture, houses and personal belongings while family and friends are irreplaceable. After the cyclone, my parents chose to stay in Darwin and would not be evacuated. Well, what a horrific story. They're so lucky to to be alive. I remember when I was a kid, it was Christmas Day, and on the TV, the first pictures of the devastation came in. This scared the shit out of me for years to come. Whenever there was a storm and there were some pretty big storms, I would be freaking out in bed just waiting for the roof to blow off. It really did mess with my brain. So to have actually gone through this, I can't imagine how distressed you would end up and back then PTSD was not really a a thing. The rescue and evacuation effort was mainly to get you out and into some accommodation with food, water and clothes. Well, Islanders, that was something different from True Crime Island. I hope it was interesting for you. There was nothing really to rage about in this episode, which is a good thing, as last week was very, very intense. What this story does show is that when there is a disaster such as this, that there are people out there that are willing to give their all to help others. It does give us hope in mankind after all. And as the title of this week's episode suggests, Santa didn't make it into Darwin. Now I don't want to make light of the situation but you can imagine Santa's reindeers saying, fuck that Santa, I'm not going into that fucking storm. So, let's get into the housekeeping. New Patreon supporters are Jennifer Swider, Katrina Flower, Nikki sars Margaret MacDonald, Jess Huey, Stephanie Weaver, and a big shout out to Julie Banks, who's gone all out for the golden deck chair. Thank you all so much for your Patreon support of the island. And remember, for as little as $1 per month, you get weekly commercial-free episodes. If you'd like to sign up, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you would just like to donate once off, you can do it via PayPal using my email address of cambo at Island. Currently, we're saving up to build a new PC on the website truecrimeisland.com there's also a link to merchandise such as t-shirts, hoodies and you can get yourself a mug of rage if you want a koozie or cooler or maybe some stickers just email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com and we can sort something out all koozies or beer coolers come with stickers but you don't have to spend money to support the island rate and review and spread the word i'm on itunes google play and the usual podcasting platforms so tell your friends and family and if they don't know what a podcast is show them and open them up to the wide world of podcasting true crime island is also on facebook just search for True Crime Island and join the cr- closed group for more true crime stuff. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, just use at True Crime Island. I'd like to give a big shout out to Mr J at Maspero Legal Services in Sydney. We had a coffee together the other day. i love to meet the listeners and have a chat at any time. This isn't an advert, But if you do need some legal help, give them a call. MasperoLegal.com.au That's M-A-S-P-E-R-O-L-E-G-A-L One thing, I have just posted a press release for Michael Gerlach, who hosts a show called Insight on Disability. Michael will interview Jean Weiner, Jane Doe from The Keepers. He's going to discuss her new book, All the details are in the press release on the Facebook page or just search for Insight on Disability. He'll have all the details there as well. So, today I do have promos to run. We haven't run them for a couple of weeks. The three I have this week, so please be patient that I do have three. Give them a listen after I sign off. One is from my podcast buddy in the U.S., Ed Denzel, who hosts the Unfound Podcast. Go and have a listen to that, that one and join his Facebook group. The next is from the two Mics from Criminology, another fantastic show. And the third one is from Bazar Henderson. He has a great podcast from Scotland. For all those accent lovers out there, I'm sure you'll fall in love with him. Halloween is coming up. So look out for The Minds of Madness, Murder Under the Midnight Sun, The Trail Went Cold and Encrypted, just to name a few of some of the Halloween specials coming up. Okay, Islanders, that just about wraps it up. I'm Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. Good night, and don't forget to delete your browser history. Hi, it's Ed Denzel from the Missing Persons program Unfound. Thank you to Cambo for giving me a few seconds to mention that Unfound is now on Patreon. The entry level, the Hardy Boys tier, is $2 a month with more to come. Your contribution will go toward Unfound continuing to bring you the very best in true crime interviews with victims' families. I also have a true crime ebook coming out on Amazon, so look for that as well. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Cambo. Hey, true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Morph. And we'd like to invite you to try out our podcast, Criminology. In this true crime podcast, Morph and I go into every single detail of a case over an entire season. And the first season is on the infamous Zodiac and is out right now. So do us a favour, go check out Criminology to get your true crime fix. You can subscribe to Criminology on iTunes or on your favourite Android app. Hey, how are you? Do you like an extraordinary story? Do you like a Scottish accent? Well, you're gonna love Extraordinary Stories podcast. Join me, Barry
1: Henderson, as I walk you through some of the craziest stories you will ever
0: hear. The stories I tell, they can be true crime, Survival, sex, identity, obsession, love and everything in between. They can be shocking, heartbreaking, funny or dark. But they're always, always real. So,
1: get yourself into Extraordinary Stories Podcast. Thanks.